0: Hello, everybody, and uh, welcome once again as we continue on in the study we're doing of the New Testament. We're working through the New Testament, chapter at a time. Um, And we have been going two and a half years in our efforts already. Uh, We're about halfway through the New Testament at this point in time. We've done all the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, although we did John before Luke, so we could do Luke and Acts together. Then we we did Luke and Acts, and uh, we, we left the book of Acts where we'd been talking about the missionary journeys and decided we would um, process through the letters Paul wrote to the churches in the order we believe he wrote them. And that um, we do that because you, you now with some context of knowing what Paul was doing, he was visiting these new places, he was starting churches, he would get run out of town, he would send some of his guys back to help them out, they had a lot of questions, the church was brand new, and, and so as we read these letters, hopefully you get some context from remembering what's happening. The church is a brand new institution, um, everything is different, and and there's a lot of questions, there's not a lot of models to look at, there's not a lot of places to go for answers, and so... Uh, when With the Corinthians, Paul had uh, left them, and it was a very different sort of place. Um, Corinth was uh, licentious, is the word they used to describe it. It was just a rowdy, rowdy place, very low morals, very um, off the charts in their occult practices. And, uh, and so that, that left them with all of that in place. Um, a very new church, a church that um, the Spirit had determined to... Uh, Give a lot of gifts to Um, This caused them some uh, problems because they thought that uh, The level of their gifting meant that they were far more mature spiritually than they really were And so that's causing an issue. They don't love very well. That's causing an issue There's an issue with the new liberties that have come to women In the gospel and we'll talk about that more today There's there's issues then in the marriages because of that liberty. There's uh, there's they're not understanding about what they should do with um, the. So there's still a lot of idols and that kind of thing going on around them. And there's people out there that they've known forever. And do they associate with them or don't they? And do they go to their barbecues or don't they? And and there's a lot of questions that they've brought to Paul. And so he's dealing with all sorts of questions. In uh, in this letter, and so you have to hold that in context. That there's a lot of stuff going on, as you can imagine. When uh, what we've gotten to now, we're up to First Corinthians 14 and uh, 12, 13, 14. Those chapters all sort of go together, and and it's about the uh, spiritual gifts that they've been given and how they're supposed to be used uh, in the church setting when they gather together. Abuses that are taking place, and that they have determined that um, in their th- way of thinking that some gifts are more valuable than others. Uh, and they have uh, been especially attached to the gift of tongues. And uh, it has a connection with ecstatic utterances that came out of the occult practices, which um, made them, uh, they'd always felt were very spiritual in their connection, many of the occult um, sort of priests, or um, uh, whatever you want to call them, would uh, would often go into these sort of ecstatic trances, and that was considered then, at that point, they were connected with God. I told you back then, in, the, in this time, um, even people that were afflicted with epilepsy were considered to be very, very close to God, because they thought it was a God thing that was happening in the process. And so there was some confusion about what the gifts meant, and that the message has been, From Paul that um, uh, through verse uh, through chapter 13, then it's you don't judge a person's spirituality by their gifts. You judge it by how well they love Uh, a a truly spiritual person loves well because the spirit of God gives gifts just uh, not based on a person's maturity level. And so they were never meant to be a, a benchmark of how spiritual someone was. It's just the, the, the Spirit of God moving in people's lives that are willing to have the Spirit move um, with and through them. And it looks different for every person. And, and Paul is going through and he's saying, listen, the, 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 they're all good, the gifts are good, um, but they have to be in the context of love and the gifts are for the common good. And so we've discussed it. And I've, I've said, you know, I've, I've given you my ideas about that we, we don't really want to get tied into, well, I have the gift of this or I have the gift of that, that I'm, I'm firmly convinced that the, the way it's presented is that the Spirit of God will just use us and, and in whatever capacity he needs if we're willing, and that the ultimate recipient of the spiritual gift is for the person that you minister to. And so a gift of healing doesn't necessarily rely, reside in you, although some people seem to, to be flowing it better. But if, if, so, if you pray for someone and they're healed, they got a gift of healing. Um, A a, a word of knowledge was really not that you so much flow in a word of knowledge, but that you gave a person and they got the word of knowledge from the Lord. He just happened to use you in the process. Word of wisdom. Most of the gifts are kind of like that. Um, Some some differences with the idea of what tongues is all about, and we'll approach that a little bit today uh, and and how that manifests itself. But it's interesting to me to note that um, 2,000 years go by and we still have a lot of the same issues in the church. Pretty fascinating when you think about it. That you could read it and it could be like, well, that could be for today. The same stuff is going on. So um, really what's happened in 12 and 13, um, Paul has explained a lot of the principles now through what the gifts are and and how important love is, and that's what's supposed to operate. And and in 14, he's going to start talking about, again, then a gathering when people get together and what that assembly looks like. And in Corinth, apparently, they were completely chaotic. Everything, there was absolutely no order. Um, they, everybody was out of control. People were interrupting one another. They didn't care about one another. It was becoming all about them instead of what it was supposed to be all about. And Paul now has to address this whole problem. And... Uh, uh... Uh, people were apparently shouting out in tongues at the same time. Prophecy was being discounted. Um, prophetic people were being interrupted. And and there was something going on with some group of women in the church at Corinth that, that had to be addressed because they were completely out of order. Now, we said that at some point what happened was that this new freedom they'd been given, and we'll touch on that in, in Christ... Um, they were all trying to figure out what that looked like, and they weren't sure how it fit. And, and all of a sudden, women who had been sort of completely uh, denigrated to uh, uh, not being in good positions in life were suddenly, in the, in the Spirit, um, gifted um, by the Spirit of God and being used in the kingdom in pretty significant ways. And they weren't all sure how that looked, and the men weren't sure how that looked either. And so there was confusion in the process, and Paul had to deal with these issues because it was starting to impact the church and the church's impact on the community and on the world, which is what the church was there for. So all of those things are in play uh, as we kind of look into um, Corinth. Also, just as a note, and we'll, we'll touch on this again, um, uh, there there were Jewish believers in Corinth, too, um, who were a part of this early church. And they would have come into with a, a very strong sense of what the synagogue order would have been according to the law, and um, there's, a, there's an idea that culturally at the time, um, when they met together, that the women would sit on one side of the church and the men would sit on the other. Pretty, backed up, pretty well backed up historically that that's how it worked. And, you know, culturally, uh, I, I know that when I, when I was doing mission work in Cuba, I thought, I thought, wow, there's a lot of single people in Cuba. Because that would happen. All the the women would be over here and all the men would be over here. And hardly any of them were sitting together. Like, wow, you know, some of these people need to get together. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> but that's what they did. The women sat on one side of the room and the men sat on the other at the church. It was just the way it worked. And we, because, and I, first I didn't know. I was like, and then, at, you know, after we, we would go on a break or something, you'd see them all pair up and go off. And it, oh. So. Um apparently that carries on. Um, one of the problems this was causing and one of the issues was um, there was so much new stuff going on. Apparently, sometimes some some of the women might be asking some of the men, their husbands across the room, what's going on? And it was disruptive. And and you'll hear a comment in there that's probably addressing that when Paul says, you should wait till you get home to ask that question. But But there's a bias that happens as a result of the fall that we need to talk about as we move through this. And we will, if if it's too bad I had all that in my notes too, so hopefully I'll remember it as we go. All right, 1 Corinthians 14, 40 verses. Let me read them to you. You can follow along. I'm reading out of the NIV. You can use whatever translation you like um, and uh, follow along with me. You should have it in your bulletins or there's Bibles on the pew or in your own word. 1 Corinthians 14. Verses 1 through 40. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. For anyone who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men, but to God. Indeed, no one understands him. He utters mysteries with his spirit. But everyone who prophesies speaks to men for their strengthening, encouragement, and comfort. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. I would like every one of you to speak in tongues, but I would rather have you prophesy. He who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, unless he interprets, so that the church may be edified. Now, brothers, if I come to you and speak in tongues, what good will I be to you, unless I bring you some revelation or knowledge or prophecy or word of instruction? Even in the case of lifeless things that make sounds, such as the flute or harp, how will anyone know what tune is being played, unless there is a distinction in the notes? Again, if the trumpet does not sound a clear call, who will get ready for battle? So it is with you. Unless you speak intelligible words with your tongue, how will anyone know what you're saying? You will just be speaking into the air. Undoubtedly, there are all sorts of languages in the world, yet none of them is without meaning. If then I do not grasp the meaning of what someone is saying, I'm a foreigner to the speaker, and he's a foreigner to me. So it is with you. Since you are eager to have spiritual gifts, try to excel in gifts that build up the church. For this reason, anyone who speaks in a tongue should pray that he may interpret what he says. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prays, but my mind is unfruitful. So what shall I do? I will pray with my spirit, but also pray with my mind. I will sing with my spirit, but I will also sing with my mind. If you are praising God with your spirit, how can one who finds himself among those who do not understand say amen to your thanksgiving? Since he does not know what you are saying. You may be giving thanks well enough, but the other man is not edified. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you. But in the church, I would rather speak five intelligible words to instruct others than 10,000 words in a tongue. Brothers, stop thinking like children. In regard to evil, be infants, but in your thinking, be adults. In the law it is written, through men of strange tongues and through the lips of foreigners, I will speak to this people, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. Tongues then are a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for believers, not for unbelievers. So if the whole church comes together and everyone speaks in tongues, and some who do not understand or some unbelievers come in, will they not say that you are out of your mind? But if an unbeliever or someone who does not understand comes in while everybody is prophesying, he will be convinced by all that he is a sinner and he will be judged by all. And the secrets of his heart will be laid bare. So he will fall down and worship God, exclaiming, God is really among you. What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. I want you to make sure you saw that word everyone there. That's going to be important in a minute. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone... There's a word, anyone speaks in a tongue. Two or at most three should speak one at a time, and someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. And if a revelation comes to someone who is sitting down, the first speaker should stop. For you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. Now, here's going to be some interesting verses for some of you. As in all the congregations of the saints, women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home, for it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anyone thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores this, he himself will be ignored. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking in tongues. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. And blessed be the word of the Lord. And really, after thinking about it, that whole chapter is self-explanatory. Let's go home. Okay, let's talk about it, because uh, I think you're going to find that it's very, very interesting. First off, let's talk about the, the issue with tongues. And the, the, there's some verses in there, um, verses 20 to 25, that, that are very discussed, because it, it seems to, that Paul says that tongues are for, and then they're not for, outsiders. And, and here's how I think that works. As I said, in the Greek culture, ecstatic utterances were taken as signs of the divine present. And, and Paul noted that unbelievers may view tongues as signs, even though believers were not to take them as a sign of spirituality. Remember, we had that discussion. It's not. Love is a sign of spirituality. But such signs have limited impact on the unconverted. If an unbeliever would attend a Christian meeting and see everyone shouting in tongues, his impression is likely to be, what a madhouse, scripturally. But if he comes to a Christian meeting and hears the word of God in plain talk, he'll be convinced by the Spirit and has the opportunity to be converted. The point is that while outsiders may come to a Christian meeting because they've heard about miraculous signs, seeing the sign in action in the church will not lead to their conversion. That requires a presentation of the gospel in words that visitors can understand. So, so Paul is saying, well, it's a, it's a, miracles are, are a way to get people in, but they generally don't convert anybody, or else all of those people that were around Jesus would have come into the kingdom, and a lot of them saw miracles and wanted to see more and still weren't moved. The proclamation of the gospel in a way that it can be understand, understood is what brings people into the kingdom. So Paul is, is making that case and that issue In the process. And ultimately, what's going on with the Corinthians is that they should give special attention to the gifts that are most beneficial to the church as a whole, without saying the other gifts don't matter, but also always remembering that love is the most important thing. So so you have to tie that into context. remember I said we have, we have a lot of different ways of looking at this, even in, in in a gathering like this. Many of you have lots of different church backgrounds, and there 's a lot of different beliefs about the gifts and whether they even are for today, and I have a lot of room for that. I understand we even talked about the different points of view we went through them that they some people believe they went left and died out with the apostles. some people believe very strongly a big chunk of the church that they they were no longer needed when the canon was complete in you know three hundred some A.D. so that the gifts weren't necessary more. And then some, you know, I personally believe the gifts are still in operation today, that God, the Holy Spirit uses gifts for the common good and to allow us to, to equip us in ministry. But I, I get the other viewpoints and I don't make it an issue. To me, it's not one of the main things. Getting people to know Jesus to me is the main thing. Everything else is a is a different thing. And and and, so, uh, and and if you hold the context that every, what mostly matters is how well we love each other, then the other stuff shouldn't be that big a deal, because we ought to be able to love each other through it. I can I can absolutely if you love Jesus and I love Jesus and we don't agree on some of this stuff, I, I love I love you. I love I love Jesus and I love you, and it's all good. And, and that's the way we're supposed to connect with this stuff, so there's room. And when you do that, if you, if you hold a context of love in a gathering like this, what's, what's allowed to happen is that the Holy Spirit then has opportunities to work on people and, and do whatever change needs to happen in, in whatever direction it needs to take. And I hope you, I mean, I know for a fact that I'm not the same that I was 10 years ago. I'm not the same that I was 5 years ago in the way I look at it, or even a year ago that the spirit of God is always working on me and moving around in my life and and getting me to see some things maybe differently and and take a look at things. I'm not moving away from the basics don't get me wrong. There's a, there's a definite standard. I mean, it's, it's all about, this thing is about Jesus. You know, there's some things that we just have to hang on to or else everything begins to fall apart. Um, you know, uh, the, the, the virgin birth, the sinless life. Those are things that we have to hang on to. That, that he willingly went to the cross on our behalf and gave his life there. That he died that he defeated death and rose again and sits at the right hand making intercession for us. Those are like, we've got to agree on those things. But a lot of this other stuff is just other stuff that's out there and we're trying to figure it out. In context, looking at um, inspired, Holy Spirit-inspired documents, but then understanding that we all have a bias that we read the Scriptures through. Do everybody get that? You have a bias that you read the Scriptures by. Everybody does. I do, you do, we all do. We have a, we have a thing in us and it, it, it causes us to interpret the scripture in certain ways. But our biases are not always correct. And and so if we ha- if we can admit that we know we have some biases, that allows for some room. We may not have all this stuff figured out. So having said that, about those things, let's talk about the other big thing. Those verses were pretty tough there in 33 through 35 about women, right? That's some hard scripture. What does it mean? Okay. Let's go back to creation real quick. I got 10 minutes and and blown apart notes. Let's see how well I do. Um, Creation. Before, before the fall, Genesis 127, God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created, a male and female he created them. Um, m- m- male and female, God created man and woman, and and uh, he was in all of that. Woman was created uh, to be a companion to man, to be his helpmeet. This was not a lesser-than role, it not, doesn't say helper. It, it says suitable helper better translated helpmeet which is companion um co um co-commissioned into the things that Adam was called to, to be fruitful and multiply, to, to rule over the earth. It wasn't good for man to be alone. So the, the word there um, implies that her mission is the same mission given to man. They were to complement one another. They were a team. And there wasn't one is greater than the other in, in the thought process. It was just man and woman created by God. The image of God in both of them, they were to do this thing together as a team. They needed one another. They complemented one another. They had different roles, but the same commission in life okay when they sinned everything changed we're we're all aware of the effects of sin on the world and the consequence of sin brought curses on the world and one of the most tragic consequences was a breakdown in relationships between men and women genesis 316 and her husband rule over her is what it says and it's an injunction of the curse and, and so from the results of sin, husbands try to dominate wives and wives try to dominate husbands. That's not how it was supposed to be. That's a result of the fall that we see. It is not God's ideal. But because of sin, men often view women as inferior and for their use, not as companions or helpers as God intended. So throughout history, things like um, polygamy, slavery, subjugation of women were practiced. By the time Jesus entered the scene, women were being treated very poorly throughout the world. They were brought, they were bought, sold, traded, and discarded. and their position had been reduced to insignificant as a result of the curse from the fall. It's not how God intended it, and it's not God's fault. He never condoned that behavior. But instead, he offers a radically different paradigm in Christ. Now, there were some things in the law um, that that seemed to um, demean women. But you need to know the law was not the ideal. It was, a, it was a, put in place because of men's hard hearts. And it, it's not the ideal of God. Jesus is. And he changes things when he comes in. And he changed things for women um, because if you if you just watch, go see how Jesus interacts with women. In that you just look, the women that were around him, and that he, he was with, and and that he honored and respected. And in the New Testament, there are women in lots of roles in the church. Um, and and so I want to, I'm okay time wise. There's Priscilla. Um, who her husband was Aquila, and she's mentioned Priscilla six times in the New Testament. This is a famous husband and wife team, six mentions in the scripture. You get six mentions in the scripture, you did really good. You know what I'm saying? Six times. Four times she comes first. And apparently what's being alluded to is she's got a very significant leadership gift on her life. They are used by God to minister to very important people, Apollos, and many ways in the church. And, and so Paul honors her by calling her a co worker in the ministry and a co worker in the gospel. Paul says that about Priscilla. Another example is Lydia, a seller of purple in Acts. Um, she was uh, very wealthy, she had a large house, and because of that, she, she hosted a church in her home. She had some leadership in that situation. Uh, uh, Chloe is another one. 1 Corinthians eleven um, had a church in her home that she that she hosted uh, and oversaw. Uh, Paul talks about a couple of women in Philippians named Yodia and this is a, her name is Suntike. Actually, um, it doesn't look like that, but that's what it is. And and they're having some sort of disagreement. And Paul writes, I I plead with Yodia and Suntike to agree with each other in the Lord. And I ask you, loyal yoke fellow, help those women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Um, He's not saying that they were under him. They served side by side in the ministry of the gospel. And their disagreement... Is, is such a big deal that it could cause potential disunity in the church. They obviously had some pretty significant position in the New Testament church. Um, uh, Paul, in uh, Romans 16, mentions six other women that administered with him. And uh, in, in each case, he, he, he's holding them in a position of honor. Phoebe, Priscilla, Mary, uh, two sisters named Trifema and uh, Trifosi. I don't know. That's a funny name. They're actually named d- dainty and delicate. I kinda like that. Okay, and uh, And then another lady named Persis, worked very hard in the Lord, obviously had a ministry. In the book of Acts, Philip had four daughters with a gift of prophecy. They went out proclaiming the truth everywhere, sharing the word, gifted speakers. And, And they were faithful to their calling and the New Testament instruction we read about in 1 Corinthians 14, for you can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. Okay, from these examples, we see that there's a lot of women involved in the early church in Paul's ministry. There's a lot. Those are the ones that made the book. That doesn't mean that's all of them. There's a lot. So, so there's this whole new order of things happening. Now, though, there's two verses in Scripture, both by Paul, that seem to intimate that women shouldn't be doing anything in the church. And you go, well, how is that possible? He's got And, and Scripture has to take care of itself. It all makes sense. It's just how you look at it. Um, But you have to remember the bias even of translators and people going through this all along because of the curse is that that men have throughout generations often seen women as inferior. And rather and what we know in Christ is this is not a greater than less than issue. It's not an equality issue because it's not we're all equal in Christ. It's firmly stated in Scripture. We do have some different roles, but it's not better than and less than there are things that, that we're called to that might be a little different. But it's it's not this thing of exclusion. So how do you deal with Scripture? All right, here's there's two. One in First Timothy, one in First Corinthians 14. First Timothy 2:11 through 15. Paul says this about instructions for worship. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not one deceived. Was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived and became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love. Holiness with propriety. Okay. Um, and just a note, yes, Eve was deceived, but Adam was... It, the Bible says Adam was there with her, so he his sin was even worse. He, he knew better. That's part of the issue that's being addressed in that thing, that four that's there between... Uh, uh, she must be silent for Adam, means furthermore. And, and some people think it's about the order of creation, that men are more important because they were created versus women. I don't think that's Paul, what Paul's saying at all. What he's saying is that um, uh, Adam spent day six hanging out with God and had been instructed by God on what was supposed to happen. He was supposed to teach Eve. Um, that's, and, and in the Hebrew, uh, the, the word Adam means the pointed one who instructs um, he, or speaks. And, and God told him the stuff that was supposed to happen. He should have been communicating that to Eve because he was the one that had been initially educated by God. When Eve was deceived, it was because there was a lack of knowledge, not, not anything else. She hadn't been taught what she needed to know. And... and uh, One of the theologians in the vineyard, a really good guy, Don Williams, he says that that verse could be translated this way. Paul's saying, I am not presently permitting a woman to teach or to have authority over men until they're taught. So what's your situation? Um, Paul is offering godly advice for it all. Until a woman has been taught, she shouldn't publicly proclaim doctrine or actively function in a place of authority in the church, but neither should any man. Um, Paul's instructions are basically, first, let a woman learn, which stands in direct opposition to, to what was culturally expected of women, both Jewish and Roman, since in those cultures women were not encouraged to be educated. That still happens in lots of places around the world. You see it happen. They educate the men and not the women as a result of all that stuff falling back to the sin. So what happens is you have this new early church. And, and uh, this is really good advice. The women have yet to be educated, just not because of their own fault, not because they're not intelligent. They just haven't had the opportunity. So now they're getting educated because in the church, they're allowed to hear and sit and receive doctrine, it says in Acts. They're getting it. Um, and the Spirit of God is gifting them to do all sorts of stuff, but it has got to catch up to one another before they can fit into the roles in the church that they'll eventually move into. Um, and so so he's saying they're just not ready yet. It's a brand new church. They haven't there's not enough education been taking place. And so I'm not permitting it yet. Um, they needed to be taught, which is what needs to happen for everyone entering into ministry, even though he's a new Christian. You get the spirit of God works in brand new baby Christians in fascinating and amazing ways, but they're not ready to stand up and teach. Because their doctrine is horrendous. Because they don't have the two together. I don't know if you remember being a brand new Christian. But I remember being a brand new Christian and having the Lord do stuff in me with people. Praying for people and everything. But I had no background to back it up with at all. And so I would, you know, things, I, I, you can say ridiculous stuff. Because you just don't have a clue. I, and, I, you know, it takes it takes a while. It has to, you have to catch up to that. You have to study. You have to pray. You have to do the things that you need to do. To, to get ready to teach, people will ask you hard questions when you 're teaching. when I first started teaching, people would ask me questions all the time i 'd be like i don 't know <laughs> uh, i 'd have to go find out because i i didn 't know yet so so this is part of the issue all right so so that 's happening now. the next time this this big occurrence is that verse as we just read thirty three to thirty five i 'm going to go five minutes long i 'm sorry um, Verse 26, it's actually 33, 30, but I want to get back to 26 for content, context. Uh, what then shall we say, brothers, when you come together, everyone everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or interpretation, everyone. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or three at most should speak one at a time. Someone must interpret if there's no interpreter. The speaker should keep quiet in the church and speak to himself and God. Two or three prophets should speak, and others should weigh carefully what is said. If a revelation comes to someone who's sitting down, the first should uh, stop. There's a lot of people being told here to be silent. All right? It's an order thing. For all, you, you can all prophesy in turn so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of the prophets are subject to control of the prophets. We've already seen that women have their prophetic gift. Book of Acts. It's in there. God is not a God of disorder, but of peace. There's a stop there. Now, remember, we put numbers on those things for our ease to find them, but it doesn't mean we hit the grammatically correct spots and that there's a lot of bias going into the scriptures infallible, but there is bias in the way it's written sometimes. There's a stop right there, mid-sentence, because there's a shift in thought. And it says this... As in all the congregations of the saints. It's a totally different thought. Women should remain silent in the churches. That first part was about order. They're not allowed to speak, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husbands at home. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Now, here's a strong possibility what happens. In the book of Corinthians, remember, it's being written... Paul responding to a group of questions. And throughout, he's taken a question, he's quoted it in the verse, and then he's spoken to it. And he uses this little tiny word in between the question and the response, and it's the word A-Y, which is translated, um, what? And and a better translation for us, the way he's using it in our vernacular would be, really? Because they, they've asked him something that's so off a of wall, he's like, Really? And then he answers it. Because look, see, because Greek is not written with the same punctuation that we use. So um, if this pattern is followed, and he does it in verses in uh, chapter 3 and chapter 5 and chapter 6, chapter 7 and chapter 8. If you hold on to that pattern, it's very possible that this verse, because it's out of place there, is not Paul's comment. It's a question raised by a Corinthian who didn't care for women speaking in church. And most likely a Jewish Christian because he, re- he reverts to the Torah, to the law. And remember, Paul constantly is saying it's not about the law anymore. We got something better than the law. Paul says that all the time. So it doesn't make sense for him to say um, what, what 33 through 35 says. Um, so the question looks like it's probably a church member saying, as in all the synagogues of the Holy Ones, women should remain silent in the synagogue, which they had to do in the synagogues. They're not allowed to speak but must be in submission as the Torah. Or the law says, if they want to inquire about something, they should ask their own husband at home. For it's disgraceful for a woman to speak in the synagogue. What Paul says there, it's not in the NIV translation, it is in the King James, is what? Look it up. That little word, A-Y. Really? And then he says, did the word of God originate with you? He's asking a rhetorical question. No. It originated with God. And it's available to everyone. Are you the only people it has reached? And, and he's saying there um, that that there, the comment is off base and that the church was different than the synagogue. And women were not excluded, but to be integrated into the kingdom and into the church as, as equal parts of what's happening, um, there's different roles. Saying all that, there are different roles for men and women, but in Christ we're equal. It's not greater than and less than. And so... You, you have to be able to come to a point where you understand what Paul is saying in the light of the, the women who were involved in the church. And I think he's making a comment that says, no, that's not how it is anymore. That's how it was. That's not what we do. There's a whole different thing. However, everything still needs to be done decently and in order. And and he had some, some people there, and a lot of them were women, that were a little out of order in their new liberty. And he's saying, we've got to take care of that. But it's not that that women can't speak in church or have roles in the church or ministries in the church or leadership spots in the church. I believe they can, as they were always intended to before the fall. So that's all I have to say about that. And, uh, boy, am I glad that chapter's over. There will be no questions. And uh, (laughs) if if you're watching by video, thank you. And uh, if there's anything we do, call us, write us. We're glad you watched. Um, get a hold of us on our website and we'll do what we can. We're going to close here with prayer.